four years. I'm starting to feel some type of way. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but I don't take lightly getting to stand in this uh, pulpit and uh, you'll always be my pastor, <laughs> my father in the ministry. And I'm so, so grateful to be here. I want to thank uh, Yadia, Venus, uh, anybody yeah. else who had a yeah. hand in uh, asking me to be here. And thank all of whoever put this whole thing together. Let's give them one more hand, please. That'll be enough for the introduction. You know, I have been at uh, Crossroads all this time, so I'm not going to try to keep you that long. <laughs> you know, no. I mean, quick service, quick in, quick out. <laughs> I went to, uh, I normally, um, because of what I do, I have to be there for almost all the services, and I had the weekend off, so I just went to one service and back. And so when I got home, my aunt was like, oh, I thought you went to church. I was like, I did. And she was like, you're only there for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. 95 years old, bless her heart, she don't understand. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to keep right in line with the uh, theme that was chosen for us today, uh, declaring your power to the next generation. And I have to be honest. When I uh, saw that in a text message, I was like, ooh, I, told, I think I told Ms. Venus, like, we can work that. Like, we can do it. I mean, just say, declare your power. Declare your power. Come on, say it. Say, declare your power. Declare your power. Doesn't it just feel good just saying it? Like, it's, it's one of those things that you're like, ooh, this sermon going to be good. <laughs> you know, because it's like one of those churchy, churchy themes, like declaring, proclaiming. I, I declare over your life today. I declare this. I declare that. I was like, ooh, there's so much stuff that we could do. I can just stand up and I declare this over your life. And then everybody just reach their hand out and receive it. And it's going to be great. You know, or, you know, we could have gotten all of the youth, young adult up. And, you know, we could have gotten their parents and their elders and just lay hands on them and just use tell them like all of the things that the world tells them that they are and then all of the things that God tells them that they are. It's like, oh, that'd be pretty cool. You want to see what it could have been like? Justin's going to stand up. He's going to stand up, you know. <laughs> you know, just find some youth and find some elders. I mean, it would be real nice. And just you know, tell them to lift their hand. Lift your dirty hands to the Lord, you know. <laughs> and tell them all of the things that God tells you that you are and you are the righteousness of God and you are the head and not the tail and you are a royal priesthood. And if we really got excited, we just lay our hands on them and just tell them. And if you're a seasoned preacher and you know the trick, you just keep saying the same thing and you push on them a little harder each time. Like, I declare the power of God over your life. I said, I declare the power of God over your life. I declare the power of God over your life. Oh, yes. That would have been great, right? Oh, yeah. That's how they're doing. But then as I continue to think, I thought, I'm not here to entertain you. Not here to entertain you. And, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking the, the selection of what we're here for. I mean, clearly we see it in the scripture of um, uh, Psalm 71, 17, and 18, that the, the theme has come directly from the text, right? Um, is it? That's not Psalm 71. Oh, yeah, it is. Or there's 17. And then, uh, so since my youth, O oh God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. And then we see in verse 18, even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O oh God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. So the theme came directly from the scripture. But before we can really work verse 18, it's just so much that we have to get through from verse 1 through 17 in order for verse 18 to have any effect. 
-hmm. I call it like principles of application. There is so much stuff that's in the Bible that we like to take. And it was like, well, the Bible says this. So I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to run with that. But we have to know um, sort of the setting, sort of the context of all of the things that are in there. So it would be awesome to, to say all of these marvelous things over our generation and to maybe lay hands and to do things. I mean, because we, we have problems in our generation, yeah? And, and I realize that this isn't Children's Day, you know, where it starts at, I think, 12 or something, that this is youth and young adult. I'm 27. I'm right in the middle of it, too. So I know more than anybody, we have, you know, issues with our generation. We can have some of the nastiest attitudes sometimes. We can be shady sometimes. We, we uh, you know, we, we, are, we value our individualism. There's a lot of things that we do that a lot of other people don't understand. Um, you know, I think probably some adults wish we were laying hands today, but not in the way that I just did, you know. Um, because you get frustrated, yeah? You know, I came from the house of, you know, I brought you in this world and I can take you out of this world. <laughs> Which was always really funny to me because I was raised by my grandmother and I think, you know, there was one time I wanted to say, well, actually. <laughs> you brought in the one who got with the one who brought me into this world. So you don't get, but I'm pretty sure if I would have said that, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. So, <laughs> praise God. Um, but you know, it can get a little frustrating. It actually reminds me of this video. Let's check it out. You will find that out in a minute. Keep that for this. Look who here. Dumb, dumber, dumberer, and the big dumb. Here you are. All right. Did they eat something? Because they're going to need all their strength. Yeah, they um, Jennifer, this is the key to the house. When you finish here, go back to the house and do not let anybody bang on this for you. This man had to. You ain't got to tell me. Watch that. Oh, I wonder where she get that from. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. I break attitudes with children like this. You heard of the horse whisperer? I'm the kid whisperer. <laughs> Look, lady, you gonna tell us what you need us for what? So talk to me like that one more time. Why? It's only me don't play. Too scary. Look at her. Don't you scared? Honey, I said to jail, I'll shank you, fool. <laughs> you better not touch us again. I'll call 911. What do you mean, touch you again? I ain't touched you yet. You gotta get to the phone if you're gonna die 911. And I will hit you so hard that your cranium and your skull and your urethra tube will all be tied up together in, inside of each other. You wouldn't be able to do nothing but pee and worm. You'll know if I got a cell phone. Whatever you got, honey, you're gonna need surgery to get it from down your throat. <laughs> Say something. Say one more thing. I'm gonna pimp slap you. Say it. That's what I thought. You're going to come into this house and you're going to clean. And if anything come up missing in my house, I promise you, you're going to come up missing. <laughs> come on. We clean it from top to bottom. Let's get in here. Mm, this is crazy. What'd you say? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Even a little kid who doesn't say anything had to start laughing. <laughs> you know, but I mean, we all know what it's like. We've all been there where our parents have been frustrated at us or, you know, even 
people that are in my generation, we know where we have gotten really, really frustrated. And the thing is that there are a lot of things going on with our generation that we can recognize, you know, things that are driving us to want to do things like youth and young adult days. Like I always think, why are churches so adamant about, you know, we have to run after the youth and we have to do this and we have to do that? Well, that's because there are some real problems that are actually going on. You know, more and more and more you find uh, people in our generations. And when I say that, I'm thinking of like millennials. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of teens who's like, you know, I have to get out of this house. You know, I can't make it to graduation. I can't make it to the time when I'm 18. I have to be emancipated because, you know, there are certain serious situations that go on in the household where you realize like, oh, like they, they have to go. Or there are families that are completely broken down. I just had a uh, child abuse training last week. And, you know, one of the things that the instructor was telling us was that when we deal with kids, we have to understand that not everybody's family makeup looks the same, correct? You know, um, and so there are things that teachers and after school people say often, like, you know, I'm going to call your mom. Who's to say that they have a mom at home to call? Or, you know, we don't even say, I'm going to call you daddy. I mean, that's just a, a different deal. <laughs> you know, um, or, you know, we're grandmothers who had to raise their seven kids, now have to raise, you know, their kids' kids, and, you know, they're tired, and, and that always has a makeup to do with things. And so there are things that are happening within the individual households, and we understand that individuals, they make up families, and families, they make up the communities, and the communities, they make up the, you know, the institutions and the places that we live that we call society. So if the individuals are broken, and then they continue to make all of this stuff up, then the institutions themselves are broken as well, correct? You know, so we see this effect in not just the church, but it's definitely one place. So some research that I, uh, I found was, you know, researchers revealed that four surveys conducted between 19... 66 and 2014 and involving 11.2 million American adolescents between the ages of 13 and 18. They found that millennials were less likely to attend services, less likely to say religion was important in their lives, and less approving of religious organizations than boomers and Gen Xers were at the same age. That last sentence was important because people were like, well, maybe it's just a trend. People, you know, they leave church, they come back. But then what they were realizing is it's worse in millennials than it is in baby boomers and Gen Xers. Um, another piece of research uh, from David Massey says that millennials, and when we say that, we're saying young adults born between 1981 and 1996 are much less likely than older Americans to pray are attend church regularly, are to re consider religion an important part of their life. Um, and so a lot of people say, well, maybe they are just more spiritual than religious, you know? So another piece of research that the Pew Research Center said was of 35,000 respondents, and that's an unusually high number of polling services to query, who identified themselves as Christian, Pew asked, do you believe Christ is the only way to eternal life? A mere 6%, 6% of mere Christians answered yes. Less than 1 in 10 answered yes, that they believe that Christ is the only way to eternal life. So what does all of this uh, research and these numbers tell us? It tells us that as our generations continue to grow and as time continues to go on, the generations are moving farther and farther from the church, which, you know, in and of itself, if you think of the church as just the institution or the building, you know, people cannot like it, but it doesn't necessarily cause a huge problem, I guess. But what we realize is that not only are they moving away from the institution, 
institution, but they're moving away from the truth and moving away from God himself. And then what was interesting was, and I, I continue to dig deeper into this, is that they're saying that people like me, people us like us, millennials, what we're doing is we're finding what we need outside of the church. We, as we grow up and we become 18 and we can make our own decisions and it's like, why exactly am I getting up and going here to spend two to sometimes four hours, you know? And there's a, what, what exactly is it that, that I'm supposed to be getting? And what we are finding is millennials are finding something outside of the church that they are not able to get inside of the church. And so we engage in all of these different activities that you may or may not approve of, but what's happening is the church people are going crazy, one, from a financial end, because if you don't get us, then the church is gonna die, right? And churches are dying left and right, more yes. churches close, Every year, you know, the one year is always greater than the last one. And a lot of people are saying that, like, by 2040, a lot of churches in our communities are going to be a thing of the past, you know. And that's simply what research states. You don't have to like it. You just have to know that that's the direction that we're heading. You know, so there's from that end. But then the other thing is people start to go, well, we have to do a youth day. And so we're going to do this youth day, and we're going to get together, and we're going to start declaring that all of these things that are happening, that they have to stop. And there's power in our words, right? God says that if you look at this mountain, you know, and you tell it to move, then it has to move. And God says that, you know, the power of the tongue has life and death inside of it. And so we decide that we're going to come into this house, and we're going to have this, this whole big service about declaring these things so that we can stop this stuff. But if there is one thing I want you to walk away with today yes. is knowing that declaring your power won't do anything. Declaring your power won't do anything. Now, fueling your declaration with power will do everything. Declaring your power will do absolutely nothing. But you just said that the Bible says that, you know, power it lies within the, the tongue and that there are things that we can say and things absolutely have to happen. So if we come into this house and we speak over this generation, then surely things have to change. Yeah, but the Bible says that power is in the tongue. So you can't say it today on Sunday and then contradict yourself Monday through Saturday. Or you can't even yes. say it here on Sunday and not believe it for yourself. Uh, let, let's break it down a little bit more. Let's throw up the, the definition for declaration. A declaration is simply a fancy overchurched word for a sentence. <laughs> it is a formal or explicit statement or announcement. That is the, the, the definition of declaration. It's a formal or explicit statement or announcement. People declare things all the time. I could say I declare war, but since I am not the President of the United States, Speaker of the House, or in Congress, it means absolutely nothing. There is no power behind my words. I can declare things all night long. I declare that y'all, you know, put an ex exponential amount of offering into that thing when you guys came up here. Now, whether or not that's true, it's just 
praise God. You know, you can just declare things all the time, and it doesn't matter. It's already done. And just because the Bible says that there's power in my words, I can walk around declaring that the sky is green. But the sky isn't necessarily going to change because there is no power to back up that declaration. Now, since it is often an announcement, what that tells me is that declaration is often accompanied by something called proclamation. And so let's look at the definition for proclamation. A public or official announcement, especially one dealing with a matter of great importance. So this means that this is something that is important to me, and now I'm announcing it because I want it to be important and take effect in you. So, and oftentimes it's something that I want to influence your behavior on. One famous one is the emancipation what? Proclamation. So we can declare that slaves are free, but then you have to proclaim and tell other people to let the slaves free, right? But then there's this third word, which is conviction. If there is no conviction behind your declaration or your proclamation, then it really doesn't really matter. So the United States could say, we have signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but if your systems don't change, if, if your actions don't back up what it is that you're saying, then you tell that to the people who, who were around, you know, just what, 150 years ago, hey, the Emancipation, the Emancipation Proclamation is signed. Don't you feel happy? Yeah, but I, I, can't, I can't go to school. I can't vote. I can't, I can't do all of these other things. So you say I'm free, you proclaim I'm free, but there is no conviction backing up what you have proclaimed and what you have declared, and therefore it has no power or influence on me. When you make declaration, when you make proclamation, if you want it to have power, there must be conviction to back up whatever it is that you are saying. And what conviction says is I believe this for myself, I have experienced this for myself, and so now that I'm giving it to you, you are more than likely to follow what I'm saying because you know I'm giving you truth, and I'm not telling you what I heard, I'm telling you what I know. So if you want declaration to work, often there has to be proclamation to let other people know about it, but you also have to have conviction backing it up. And we see this in Psalm 71, starting in verse 1. So, you know, there's it's just amazing when you look at, at the way the writer writes, beginning in verse 1. He says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command and save me, for you are my rock and my fortress deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grabs of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth, I have relied on you. You have brought me forth from my mother's room. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength 
is gone. And you see this theme carried up all the way up to verse 18. And what is interesting is, so by the time we get to the declaration, he has already stated that this is something that he believes in. Look at the model. You have declaration, you have conviction, and then you have proclamation. Conviction is at the center of it all. If you don't believe it for yourself, you are simply saying words. If you don't believe it for yourself, then the proclamation means absolutely nothing. So by the time we get to verse 17 and 18, let's look at that again. So since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day, I continue to declare your marvelous deeds. Now in verse 18, when he says, even when I am old and gray, because his time is coming to an end, right? Do not forsake me, my God. I'm going to stay with you, but I will declare your power to the next generation. It is the picture of running a marathon, and he's passing the baton to the next generation. Yeah. But the power, the problem with what we're doing today is we're trying to pass the baton, but you haven't run the marathon. Hey! How dare you proclaim something over me that you have not proclaimed over yourself? How dare you lay out the rules for me and tell me what you want me to follow, but when I look at you, you who I see every day, you who are inside of my house, you who I see talking on the phone and cussing people out, you who I see carrying on, on and on and on, you want me to go to church, but you don't want to go to church, or you come to church, but you're just there on your cell phone the whole time, we just passing time, so how dare you want me to have a reaction when you don't have it. Let's see if we can make this clear. We, we want our daughters to grow up and we want them to, to marry some really nice, respectable, you know, young men. It's just, it's just interesting, right? But, but we see who turns your head. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You, you can't wrap your mind while she want to go out with that boy with them sagging pants and the tatted up body and ain't got no job, but he's still, she comes home and she looking at that ninja sitting on your couch and ain't got no job. running after education and running after all these things and why why they value, you know, pimping women and why they value, you know, having multiple girlfriends and why they, they have different values in the places that we don't want them to have. And why, why is it that so many of our young black men especially end up, you know, pursuing lives in the streets? Well, 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 well what, what is it from day one that they have seen that you value? I mean, from, from the time that they could remember, they hear you listening to, who Little Wayne, Dre, this, whatever, in the radio that you just turn up like this is a, this, you're saying that this is a picture of somebody that I like, that I follow, that I see, or they see that, you know, they don't have a roadmap to manhood, and I declare that a man, ha a boy, has to have a roadmap to become a man, otherwise he just gets older, he just gets taller, he just gets bigger, but he's still a boy if he has not had 
somebody in the house to show him what it looks like to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning or maybe 4.30, put on some clothes even when you're tired, go to work, do 12 hours, go to the grocery store, pick something up, come back home, help you with your homework, talk to you about your day, show up at school on his lunch break and tell you don't do that, don't go there, go there, don't talk to her, she a chicken head, but look at her, this is who you want to talk to, and he never had that. proclaiming you're going to be different. You're going to be different. You're going to be different, but then they grow up and do the exact same thing. Because they haven't had a roadmap to show them anything different. And don't you dare put it on Pastor Venice. It's not that the church is ineffective. Though we'll get to the church. But how do you expect Two and a half hours on a Sunday morning to undo all the hell that they have been through from Sunday to Sunday. It's so much. It is so much. So what we have to do is we have to understand that that there's something deeper here. So when we're seeing behavior that is unfavorable, we have to understand, like, what is triggering this? Can I really be surprised? Mm. We did a, uh, a, a journey over at Crossroads called Undivided. And um, it was an interesting thing where um, our campus pastor, Chuck Mingo, he's black, uh, he shared his story on uh, just a couple of different things, how he had come to Crossroads very, very early, you know, just as a parishioner. Uh, he came here from out of town. He got a job at PNG. At his job, all he saw were, you know, white people. And then he came to this church, and largely all he saw were white people. And he was like, you know, I got to, if I stay at this church, then I'm, I'm not going to know any black people. You know, so he <laughs> left, you know. And he found another church, and it was cool. But then he said that he really felt the conviction to go back because there was something that God wanted him to do. So he went back, and it was a struggle. Um, and slowly but surely, as Crossroads got bigger, you know, more and more black people began to come. And he wasn't the only one. And ultimately, he became the, the campus pastor. But he always had, like, this heart towards, like, you know, we got to do something and really represent for this other, you know, group of people. And then as the riots happened and as, you know, we dealt with things like the death of Sonny Kim and if we, as we dealt with all of the other things on the national level, you know, he started to see like there's a huge problem on race that still surrounds our city. And the huge thing is where people just don't get together and have conversations. Because we say in our own little spot, right, you know, we know what we know from the, the barbershop, you know, and we talk, and this is where we form our opinions and things like that, you know, it's called echo chambers, and, you know, you got white people up in the suburbs, and, you know, they talk about things that are going on, but they're talking to people that look like them, that probably agree with them, and so we might be talking about the issues, but we only ever do it with people who look like us, agree with us, and then so we never really grow, and there's never really change. So what it did was we put people of different races all together and we put people of different social and economic backgrounds all together and you know for five weeks we got together and we just had really raw 
honest conversation. And the thing that surrounded the whole thing was, one, you have to develop a relationship with someone who is different than you. Because sometimes it's not always that, you know, the blacks are the rights, that they're racist, or that they can't get along. It's just that they have never seen things from a different point of view. And what we learned was that we all had these racist tendencies because we've all kind of developed a worldview very specific to our experiences that never, because we never actually sat down with someone and said, hey, tell me how you felt when you see this. Or tell me how, you know, how can you possibly vote for Trump? Tell me what, you know, tell me how you get excited about that. You know, tell me this or tell me that and actually be willing to listen to the other side. So he talked about relationship, but then he talked about this thing called empathy, where if you don't have empathy, then it's not going to work. Whereas empathy, it sounds like sympathy, but it's very, very different. Empathy is the ability to get on your level, even when I haven't been where you've been, even when I don't agree with what you just said, even when I wish you weren't where you are, empathy is my ability to get on your level and still engage with you. Actually, uh, there's a TED Talk by Brene Brown who did a really, really good example of what empathy is like. Um, let, let's check that out real quick. <laughs> So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, 
I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So this is what we we learn from that, is we are driven to need to connect with people, but the problem is the church does not do that very well. Mm. That's true. The church does not do that very well. And now, it's no fault we have not been trained and conditioned from the beginning to do that very well. So pastors and deacons and elders and musicians and all of these other people, what we, we're, they have the charge to take care of the organization and the institution, right? And so the best way they know how to do that is the Bible. And included in the Bible are all of these rules that tell you what we shall and shall not do, correct? So a part of their job, yes, is to give us that truth and to say, hey, I have a responsibility to hold the doctor and I have a responsibility to hold this institution together. So here are the rules if you're going to be, you know, when people come up here, you tell every single one that you will be ruled and governed, you know, by New Mission Missionary Baptist Church, correct? So we do that part very well, but what we miss is also in the Bible, which is at the very key of the Bible, is something called the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is a funny thing because it dummy-proofed what it is that we are supposed to do. Yet so many churches are totally at a loss as to how to reach people when Jesus Christ has already dummy-proofed it. He dummy-proofed it because just like, you know, the one person was in a hole and in a dark place, instead of standing over the hole and saying, good Lord, you're down there again. (laughs) You know, that's unfortunate. Jesus leaves glory. down into the world. Another thing church people like to say is that, oh, those people in the world, the people, they in the world, they of the world, they of the world. Okay, Jesus came into the world. He chased those people. Yeah. Looked like us. Walked with us. Why? So we would know what it feels like to have the actual Lord put his hands on us and walk with you. Notice he didn't have to do it and it wasn't always like this. But if there was ever going to be salvation, he had to take on human form and get on our level. Now, clearly, when he did that, he went directly to the church. He went directly to the people who will already be receptive to him, correct? No. No, he didn't. No. No. They found him with sinners. Where do we get this idea that once you are saved, that you have to run as far away from sinners? Like, where, where do we get this idea that if, if I hang around you and you smoke, then sooner or later, I'm going to start smoking. If I hang around you and you're gay, you know it's contagious, so I'm going to get gay too. If I hang around you and you cheating on your husband, then I'm going to cheat on my husband. The, the model is that Jesus went to those people and what he did was he changed them, not the other way around. Yeah. Wow. 
So what the church has gotten really good at is we've created this in-group, we've created this club, and, and it's so exclusive, and if you don't look like us, and if you don't walk like us, and if you don't do the things that we do, and if you haven't completed your new members class, and, and if you dare walk in here looking like you just came off the street, and if you don't smell right, and if there's a boy holding a boy's hand or a girl's holding a girl's hand, then oh, they got to go out because we don't do that here. We got to hold on to the rules. But what Jesus said was, what if? You said, come sit right here, baby. Come sit right here. And then what if I started talking to you and engaging with you and trying to figure out how you got to become you? You want to know how to fuel your declaration? Your story. Your story. Your story is your best fuel to power your declaration. Your story is your best view to power your declaration because the Bible says even for Jesus, we don't have a high priest that can't relate to us. Though a part of the whole point of him coming down here, he was tempted just like you and I. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to want to do wrong. He knows what it is, but he also can say, yeah, I was there, and then he can walk us through the process. You and I, he said when he left that you and I would do greater works. Why? I think because we have the opportunity to sin. I think we can do greater works because you and I have had the opportunity to not be perfect. Because when I tell my story, I know I'm the only one that's messed up real bad at But when I tell my story, people will know that there is nothing too hard for God. When you look at me getting to stand here today and preach to you, but if you knew where I've been and what I've done and how I got there, the problem is when we see people going through the process, we don't like to tell them that this isn't exactly where you're going to be always. We like to remind them where they are. You start speaking where you want them to be, not where they are. You start telling that child right now who they are in Christ, not who the world tells them they are. And you don't just say it because you think that if you say these affirmations and you say it every day that some voodoo magic's gonna happen, you say it because you actually believe it. That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Yes. So, uh, another thing that I do is I run uh, Revolution Dance Theater, um, and it's a nonprofit organization, and we, we do uh, different things. We have a summer camp, we have an after-school program. Uh, one of the things that, um, that I always tell my staff when we have a kid, then either the after-school program or the summer camp program, and you know, we just started this, and they don't exactly like it, but uh, they, when they get in trouble, not only if I have to like call a parent or do something or we have to write somebody up, you know, I also talk to the staff and one of the questions I ask them is what did you do beforehand so that it never even got to this point? Did we create an environment for them to succeed? Because kids will be kids <laughs> and kids, they like to hit you for no unknown reason. They like to pass gas at five years old because they just think it's funny. You know, they like to pick their nose and then touch you because that's apparently what we do. You know, they are kids, right? And so did, did you 
I mean, did you not do that? I mean, I know that you were a perfect child all of the time. So when you see people bullying people or talking about people, what would happen if instead of reaching for the write-up form, you actually connected with them and said, look, not in a, hey, stop doing that sort of manner, or what if, what would it look like if you were like, you know what, man, I need to do that too. Now, it's not okay. <laughs> Let me tell you the reason why. And then you've gotten vulnerable with that child, and they're more subject to change. Right. One of the things that I don't like to do is suspend kids or tell kids that they can't come back to the program because we created the program for troubled kids. And what I realized we were doing was what a lot of other programs do, right? <laughs> like, hey, we're going to bless this community. We're going to put all these schools in the community. And then you expel the kids and tell them they can't come. <laughs> well, we don't want the good kids to suffer. But I thought you planted the school in this community to bless the kids of this community. So when the kids from this community without their daddies and with their ratchet mamas and with their this and with their that come in here and actually just act like a product of their environment, you tell them they can't come back. Mm. And then they get sent to what? A to S. And then they don't do well there because now you took in all your bad apples and you put them all in one place and you're like, oh, that's gonna work, right? <laughs> They're gonna be perfect. So you put all the bad apples, you put them in one place and then they do what bad apples do when they get together and then you tell them that they can't go there and so now they have to repeat school or you know, when they get to a certain age, they can just decide to give up altogether. We forgot what it's like, like, oh, the model has to build in grace. The model has to build in, you're allowed to make mistakes. I'm gonna hold you accountable, I'm gonna give you truth, but you have to be allowed to make mistakes as well. Now obviously we're a dance theater, so another thing that we do is dance. Um, and we just did this show uh, called um, Broken and Beautiful, The Cage Bird Dances, and we were, we were looking at why is it that so many um, African Americans in particular have a hard time succeeding well, because we've lost the story, right? You know, when, when we, there are a lot of times where I call a person on the phone and they, I get told that I sound white. And there have been plenty of times where I've had conversations and then I go to meet somebody for like a business meeting and then it was like, oh, literally out of their mouth, oh. <laughs> and I always wanna go, yes. <laughs> Can I help you? <laughs> it's like, it was like, oh, oh, you're black. Yeah, yes, yes I am. <laughs> you know, something like that. Um, and, and the problem is because when people are doing right, we assimilate that to white culture, yeah? Because white is right. But let me tell you one of the things that I learned in Undivided was I have that similar kind of thought because black people don't really have their own culture. If you look at it, you know, um, Hispanics, you know, they, they got their culture because they were in the same spot, you know, and over time there were just ways that they found out how to do things, foods that they started to cook, and you know, and that was, 
in Mexico, and so Mexicans became Mexicans, you know? I, same thing for Irish, same thing for all of these different people. What happened was you take the people from their home as stolen goods, you put them in, and then you tell them that they're not people. You tell them all of these things, and even though, like, you see these pictures of, you know, plantation masters, and they're here with, like, hundreds of people in the field. And surely, if all those hundreds of people got together, they could overthrow this one man. But when you have repeatedly told a person what they're not and what they can't do, sooner or later, you start to believe it, right? Just like a dog, you know, you can put them on a chain and you train them and you train them. You can take that chain off and they could see a cat. They could see the best dog treat across the street and they won't run after it because their mind has already been broken. And so now they know all of their limitations. What is happened to our kids is we have told them over and over again how bad they are. We have told this generation over and over again how frustrated we are. We have communicated, if not with our words, with our actions, by pulling their programs, by cutting their budget, by saying we can no longer do this, that you are not valued to us. You keep going out and you keep doing all of this other stuff in the world, so if that's where you want to be, then you go on being over there, and when you decide to get your life together, then you can come back inside of this church, and then we can work it out. Well, when the when people hear that, they go where somebody is not doing all yes. that stuff. <laughs> I actually brought one of our girls in the area. You know what I mean? You're supposed to start right there. You know, go there. And, and it's really interesting, uh, this, this idea of being a bird in a cage and the things that you always continue to hear. Why you wanna fly, blackbird? You ain't ever gonna fly. Why you wanna fly, blackbird? You ain't ever gonna fly. No place big enough for holding all the tears you're gonna cry Cause your mama's name was lonely And your daddy's name's pain And they call you little sorrow Cause you'll never love again You ain't got no one Tell a person over and over again, why do you even try? You ain't why do you why even try? Yeah. So we're gonna wrap this up. And the the point of that is to say, yes, 
the Bible is very clear about what it accepts and what it doesn't. And the message of this is not saying that we have to now, in order for the church to be successful in 2016, we have to throw out the rule book and then we have to say that we're accepting of all these things. You know, I have a very, very close friend of mine. He's a pastor and, you know, the doctrine of his church is God did write the Bible, God inspired the Bible, but God is still speaking, you know, that there is all of this extra stuff that is left up to conjecture, you know, where this can be your truth and this can be your truth and this can be your truth. I'm not saying, and I was very vocal, like that just doesn't make sense because how do you know what is true when Jesus himself has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. But Jesus also looks at a thief on the cross. Who had a built up track record as a sinner, who was about to take his last breath. He did not have time to come up here and to be voted in by the deacon. <laughs> he had sinned all his life. He didn't have time to complete his new members class. He did not have time to, to now start doing right and climbing the ladder to undo all of the wrong that he had done because that's what religion tells you, right? Religion tells you that you have to obey the rules and you have to complete the steps and you have to go through the process in order for it to be done. What Jesus did was he exercised empathy. He recognized where the thief was. Now I'm preaching my Friday sermon. And, you know, he, he told him, I know where you are and because of what I'm doing right now, sharing empathy, sharing his own story. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. But, but he didn't follow the rules. He was actually the exact opposite. He was a sinner. I think that when we get to heaven, there's going to be the longest line in the customer service department because we are just for the life of us not going to understand how in the heck did she make it up here and I know what she's done and how in the heck is he here and I got up every Sunday morning and he slept in? Oh, no, 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 no. How in the heck is she here and she had six kids and ain't never had a husband? How is she here and he been stealing and he been lying and he was smoking that dope and he was doing this and he was doing that? How did he get here and I seen him in the club? I seen him in the gay club. I seen him over here. How? is he and she and her and him making it up here because when you realize what Jesus did his blood was strong enough that when you get into relationship with people and you say I don't know what got you to where you are and I don't know why you do what you do but let me just ask you the question why do you feel that you need to take these drugs to escape this reality and you let them tell you your story, you'll be amazed about what you see. When you ask a person, so you mean to tell me the same way that I love my wife of a different sex, you see this person, I just don't understand. And neither would you, right? Because that's not your preference. But when you allow them to tell you their story and what their experience is, and you cannot take away someone else's experience, you can't tell them what their supposed to be. You can't tell them how you got there. You just have to stop and listen and go, 
Well, I never knew that. Yeah, <laughs> I just had exactly. no idea. That's not my story. But that's your story. When you stop and you engage with people and you listen to their story, and instead of casting them out, you bring them in, then you have an opportunity not to change their behavior, but to change their heart. Yeah. that the point of this church was to change everybody's behavior. Mm. No, no, no. We're in this to change people's hearts. And you don't do that by telling them how terrible they are. That's right, that's right, that's right. You don't do that by reminding them why you're trying to fly, Blackbird. <laughs> you ain't never gonna fly. I mean, your life would just be so much better if you just gave that up. How about you find somebody like a John Willis, and you say, hey, you thought that drugs were the answer, and you know what? I don't even fault you for it, because you weren't finding it in the church, right? <laughs> and then somebody offered you something, and it felt good. And so since then, you've been running after it, trying to get that same high. And, and you know, you think that they choose to just be out there on the street, right? You think that a, a heroin addict chooses to be overdosed in their car, right? Because that's the life they choose. Not possibly that they are so caught up in another world and what they need is somebody just like Jesus came down in the world. They need somebody to step down, spend some time with them, grab their hand and slowly start bringing them out and walking with them. You thought she just woke up one day and decided I'm just going to be the biggest thought ever and I'm just going to go go out and have sex and I'm going to go out and do this. You know, my, my sister told me a story of a girl at Schroeder just two weeks ago caught in the bathroom just giving different people, you know, blowjobs in the bathroom, completely naked, letting people take turns on her in the boys' bathroom. When I hear that, you have an opportunity to go up there, you can just beat her, you can try to pray it out of her, you can declare that she'll never do it again. But my question is, what happens to a 15-year-old girl to make her possibly think that that is okay? What has she been through that she doesn't value herself enough that anybody, it's a free-for-all. You want some, you want some, you want some, come get it. Something that's not normal, something has happened in her past and when she found somebody to stop talking down to her and stop picking her out, but sit her down and actually ask her and get to the root of the problem and work it out, then some things are gonna change. So you want to declare your power. Start telling your story. Let us know that you weren't always perfect. Let us know that you didn't always like coming to church. Let us know that that marriage certificate came after the baby. Let us know that you too used to hang out in the club.
God pray for a powerful, powerful That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Somebody here. Jesus wants to meet you where you are and take you where he can only take you to be. We got ministers here. I want to pray with you and talk with you. Because the truth is, we all got a story. The Bible says that we will overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb and our testimony. Today, God want to give you a testimony. We want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. That the Lord Jesus Christ want to meet you where you are and take you where he has called you to be.